This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Just, uh, just, just a quick uh, note that Faith uh, just mentioned a while ago is whenever um, Abigail does get here from Liberia, understand that she does not speak English uh, very much yet. She's learning. We've seen a couple of videos, and she does a lot of jabbering, a lot of chattering. Uh, she's four and a half years old, but um, her, her English is not very good yet. And so if she doesn't answer you in English, why, that's okay. Just uh, uh, understand um, her background. Well, last week we studied Daniel chapter 5, but for our lesson today, even though this is not a series, um, but I felt led to take our study um, on into uh, Daniel chapter 6. And we want to look at a story that is probably one of the top three favorite and most taught Bible stories, stories in kids' church, and, and that's the story of Daniel being thrown into the lion's den. When it comes to big church, however, pastors rarely speak on this. Uh, so therefore, since we seem to only hear this story from a kid's context, what sticks in our minds is a kid-friendly version. You have Daniel as a young man. He's always a handsome young man, and the lions are gentle, and they're well-groomed, and they almost look like overgrown kittens, and, and they just kind of cuddle up to Daniel, and they lick his hands, and maybe lick his face, and he rubs their bellies, and they roll over and purr, and he uses them as a pillow as they take a nap together. But that version, even though it makes a great Disney movie, does not present the real picture. First of all, Daniel, in this account, was no longer a young man. Um, picture a somewhat stooped man that has gone through about 80 birthdays. He was around 80 years old. He's graying, maybe even balding. And then the biggest distortion in this kid-friendly version is that these lions were not little, lovable, overgrown kittens. I've told you a number of times that when we lived in South America, I had a fascination for wild animals. And we owned a fox, a gray fox. We owned a badger and some other animals that, that now are considered exotic animals. And, and again, I've told you this multiple times, but we owned an ocelot, which you can Google that. Uh, don't do it right now, but it's like a bobcat, uh, except it's got a long tail. That The tail is about as long as the body of the cat itself. Uh, this cat was named Murdoch. He was fairly gentle at times. He lived in the house a good part of the day, but he was temperamental. He had a mean streak about him. And then we owned a, a two-month-old Jaguar, and this was uh, not the car. I wish it had been the car, but it was the cat. But when he came out of his mother's womb, he was already cranky. Kind of reminds me of some people I know. And so we didn't keep this jaguar very long. But, but my limited experience with jungle cats gives me total respect for the king of the jungle. And, and don't think for one moment that these cats in Daniel chapter, chapter 6 were tame, lovable, purring animals. Because at the end of the chapter, when, um, when the king saw through the shenanigans... Uh, that, that Daniel's colleagues were involved in, Daniel's accusers and wives and children were thrown into the lion's den, and we'll get there, but the Bible says that before they hit the floor of the den, their bones were crushed. Before they hit the floor of the den. So these cats were vicious, man-eating lions. 
Now, as we look at this account, we could go in multiple directions. But today we're going to focus on the issue of standing up for matters of conscience. School started this past week, and for you students that, uh, that, that just went back to school, there will be those times, whether you go to the public school, whether you go to the Christian school, whether you go to college, you will find yourself in situations where you will be presented with a choice. Do I do what I know is right? Or do I do what is popular and what most everybody else is doing? This school year for you students will bring you face-to-face with decisions that will involve your conscience. For you adults, it will be no different. You know, because today we're witnessing a collision of values. Values that are being promoted by the world that are in direct conflict with the values that we find in the Bible. And so all of us, whether we are young, whether we are old, it's almost like we are in a vice and are being squeezed. And we're having to make decisions to conform or not to conform. Do I follow my conscience? Do I follow what the Bible says? Or do I do what is now widely accepted? Now, unfortunately, as we are faced with those colliding values, many times we as church people have taken two wrong approaches. Whether it's the matter of creation versus evolution, or the matter of marriage between a man and a woman versus same-sex marriage. Whether it's abortion versus life, or a thousand other situations that involve matters of ethics, we as church people many times have not responded the right way. The, The first wrong approach is that many of us have chosen to go silent. We've decided that rather than being singled out and accused of being a, a, a religious radical, we've bitten our tongue, we've zipped our lips, we've remained silent. And afterwards, we might have said, well, you know, I really didn't agree with it, but that's just kind of the new normal. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the first wrong approach. The second wrong approach is that we've sometimes spoken up or we've taken action, but, but it's been in the wrong spirit, with the wrong methods. We, we've called people with other lifestyle nicknames, made fun of them, or, or called certain groups of people losers. We've shown ugly attitudes that don't reflect the love of Jesus. You know, as pastor, unfortunately, we have people come to us and they're hurt because they have friends or relatives in a particular sinful lifestyle and, and they don't agree with it. But to hear a church person flippantly use derogatory names in reference to them, I, I'm, sure, I, I'm sorry, but it, it shows a high level of immaturity and insensitivity and it hurts a lot. That's the second wrong response. So we need to learn how to stand up the right way for matters of conscience. Now, Daniel in chapter 1 was brought to Babylon as a young teenager under King Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel chapter 6 probably is around 65 years later. Again, Daniel, about 80 years old. He's lived through a half a dozen different kings. Daniel is now serving under King Darius, or also pronounced Darius who had come into power after the death of King Belshazzar and the collapse of the Babylonian kingdom that we talked about last week. Now, as I often do, I I like to go back to history, and I've got 
the, the works of Josephus in, in my office. And sometimes I'll, I'll go online and try to research some of the people that are in our lesson. And, and I try to find out more information about Darius or Darius the Mede. But historically, and I, and I found this really interesting, there is little information about Darius the Mede. There are other rulers with the same name of Darius, but for this particular time period in history, scholars suggest that Darius or Darius the Mede might have actually been Cyrus the Great, who had been directing the armies of the Medes and the Persians when Babylon was, was conquered. But, but despite the little information we have, Scripture tells us that, that Darius was an administrative genius. In fact, as soon as he started ruling the kingdom, he began restructuring the government and set up 120 positions known as satraps. Basically, that's a cool word, which means a kingdom protector. And then Darius put three administrators over the 120 satraps, and and Daniel, who had kind of disappeared from view during the tumultuous 25 years between Daniel chapter 4 and chapter 5, was back in the forefront as Darius noted Daniel's leadership ability and chose him to be one of the three administrators over those 120 satraps. And it was interesting, the job of these three administrators was to guard the financial affairs of the nation and basically, listen, balance the national budget. Did you hear that? And and I know that's kind of a foreign concept for those of us as Americans. Did I just say that? (laughs) I'm supposed to pray for government, not criticize. Forgive me, Lord. But let's uh, let's get into our reading, Daniel chapter 6, verse 1. Darius the Mede decided to divide the kingdom into 120 provinces, or satraps, and he appointed a prince to rule over each province. The king also chose Daniel and two other as administrators to supervise the princess and to watch out for the king's, inter- for the king's interest. And listen to this, verse 3. Daniel soon proved himself more capable than all the other administrators and princes. Now, remember how old Daniel was by now? About 80. Even at the age of 80, he is still head and shoulders above others in leadership ability. Because of his great ability, the king made plans to place him over the entire empire. So so Daniel was not only one of the top three administrators in the kingdom, but now King Darius is making plans to promote Daniel from one of the three administrators to be in second in all of the Persian kingdom. Now, with that as our setting, for the next few moments, I want to make three observations or maybe three statements from this cat story that I think will help us better and more properly be able to stand for matters of conscience. Number one, when God raises you up, expect people to try to tear you down. Or when God blesses you, expect people to blast you. When you rise to the top, not everyone will be happy for you. Have you found that out? You know, when you do well in life, when you do well at your job, when you do well in your business, not everybody is happy for you. That is a cruel fact of life. And here in this account, we see that the other two administrators don't like it that Daniel has outshone them at the age of 80, and they get jealous, and they do what Democrats do, and, and, and they do what Republicans do, 
and what both parties have become experts at, and that is to dig up dirt on people. But it's not only our enemies that many times will come out against us. What's interesting but very hurtful is that the opposition many times comes from those that we think would be most supportive of us. Doesn't that hurt? Whenever you hear that your friends have criticized you. In fact, learn this. When, when God begins to do a work in a church, many times it's good church people that resist the moving of God. Many times it's good church people that throw cold water on a revival and, and they begin focusing on the side issues or technicalities, things that maybe are not being done in the way that they've always been done. And they can't see the big picture. They can't see lives that are being changed. They can't see what God is doing. Frankly, I don't worry too much about this church being brought down by people outside of the church. I know we have outsiders that shoot at us as a church all the time. You know, they accuse us. Here are some of the things I've heard of. I'm sure you've heard of a lot more, but they accuse us of being the rich church. Um, or they say we're a larger church because we allow in anything and everything. Uh, which leads me to say, how does that make you feel? You know, we allow in anything, anybody, everybody. Um, I've heard that accusation for years. I've heard that, well, we as a church compromise and we don't stand up for anything and that we have a bunch of hypocrites that attend. And, and when I hear that from people, I always want to say, well, there's always room for one more. Um, most of the time I'm able to kind of uh, zip it there, but... Now, now, some of the statements that people make are, are true, because we're not a perfect church, you know, especially the pastor. But not all of what is said is, is true. But really, I don't lose a lot of sleep about those accusations from outsiders. I, I don't think that that's what's going to bring this church down. But here's what I worry about. I worry that we as a church will be our own worst enemy. I worry about the possible disunity within the church among you. I worry about having a lack of love for each other. I, I worry about us as a church getting spiritually casual and lukewarm. I worry about wrong priorities overtaking right priorities. I worry about selfishness, you know, making sure that the church exists for me. I mean, just to make us happy. I don't worry too much about what outsiders say. It does sting a little bit. But I worry about how we as a church have the potential to self-destruct. But anyway, when God begins to do a work through you, don't expect smooth sailing. Because human nature, because carnal nature is that there will always be those who will try to tear you down. And Daniel's promotion, instead of being celebrated by his fellow colleagues, was blasted. And, and let's see what his two colleagues did in, in, in verse 4. Then the other administrators and princes began searching for some fault in the way Daniel was handling his affairs. So, so here's what they did. They said, let's dig up dirt on Daniel. Let's run political ads to smear him. But listen to this. But they couldn't find anything to criticize. Wow. Listen, he was faithful honest, and always responsible. Can that be said about you? Can that be said about me? Faithful, 
honest, responsible. Now, I found some people that are honest, but they're not responsible. Um, you know, I found some people that are responsible, but they're not honest. Daniel is faithful, honest, responsible. So verse 5, so they concluded, our only chance of finding grounds for accusing Daniel will be in connection with the requirements of his religion. So the only thing they could find against Daniel was in his religious beliefs. He didn't follow the crowd. He followed his conscience. He didn't bow to the pagan gods. He bowed to God Jehovah. And so his fellow leaders came up with this idea. They went to the king and buttered him up and said, oh, King Darius, you're an incredible king. We're so blessed to have you. I don't know what we would do without you. You're just bigger than life in this kingdom. And and King, we were thinking about a plan to honor you, and I'm sure you're too humble to do this yourself. We'd like to do this for you. We think that you should consider issuing a law that over the next 30 days, no one can bow down and pray to any God except you. And, And King Darius, surely no one would ever refuse to bow down to you because you're loved and you're respected by all. But if there should be any renegades that would end up praying to another God, then they would need to be punished for their, in, their insubordination. And I don't know, maybe, maybe King, they could be thrown into the lion's den. There probably wouldn't be anybody, but maybe that could be the punishment. What, what do you think about that, King? And Well, King uh, Darius was like many kings. You know, kings often became very vulnerable to pride. But by the way, just as we as bosses or foremen or influential people or people of financial means, we all run the risk of pride. The, the more successful you become, the greater the temptation to become prideful. And so I'm sure King Darius was, was flattered and said, Oh, shucks, <laughs> you, you guys are embarrassing me. But he liked the idea. And he said, go ahead, draft up the memo. I'll sign it, put my seal on it. And if for the next 30 days, any so-and-so prays to any other God but to me, bows down to them, they will be lion's lunch. Well, naturally, this created a problem for Daniel because Daniel did not worship idols. He did not worship people. He worshiped God. And, And part of his worship to God was evidenced by being a man of prayer. And you could just about set your clocks to Daniel's three daily prayer times. So how did Daniel respond? You, you know the account. You, you, you could tell it in your sleep. But verse 10, when Daniel learned that the law had been signed, he went home and knelt down as, what's that word? Usual. Usual. He had regular times of prayer. As usual, knelt down his upstairs room, with its windows open towards Jerusalem. And, and, you know, religious Jews still do that today. On, I've seen it every time that I've gone to Israel um, on the all-night flights. The religious Jews will pray. Thankfully, they don't uh, open the windows there on that jet, but they do uh, face Jerusalem because that's their religious homeland and where the temple is, and in their minds, that's where God's presence was. And and, and catch how often he prayed. He prayed three times a day, just as he had always done, giving thanks to his God. Now, as we look at the situation the way I say it, Daniel had three options. One, here's the first option. He could stop praying. 
He could have said, God, you know, my relationship, we, we go back, you know, nearly 80 years and, 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 you know, I pray to you three times a day. I never miss. And, uh, I, I've done that for decades, God. And, and, and God, I'm sure you would agree with me that probably the best thing for me to do with this new law being passed is to just kind of low key my prayer time for 30, 30 days, because God, you know, if I die, then there's really no one else who will be a godly influence in the kingdom. And so this is a no-brainer. But then after 30 days, God, we'll be back together again. Option one. I wouldn't have chosen that option. I don't think you would have either. But, but here's this second option is one that I probably would have chosen. I would have probably just closed the window. And with the window closed, I would soften my voice a little bit. They would have never known that I was praying. I would have probably done what some of you maybe do in public. Whenever you pray for your food, you kind of go like this. You know, just calling but one motion so nobody knows what you're doing. Um, but Daniel didn't do that either. You remember what he did. He kept praying out loud as he had always done with the window open three times a day. And Daniel knew the implications. He was basically signing his own death sentence. Now, the question came up, and I really tried to think about this this past week. Why, why did Daniel feel he had to pray out loud? Why couldn't he have just prayed quietly? And I can't answer that for sure, but probably since that had been his practice for decades, and to change that practice now in his mind might have felt like compromise. You know, he felt, would have probably felt that he was bowing to pressure. And, and I have to say this. There's something special about praying out loud. I don't do enough of it during my prayer times. But etched in my mind are those, are those prayers. And some of you, and I've talked with Ralph, I think it was, that was telling me the same thing that just remembers about his, his dad, his mom maybe. But I, I remember the prayers that my mom prayed in the bedroom, her bedroom with the door closed. I can still almost hear her voice, and she was always crying. She was so tender. and She was crying, lifting her voice up for, for me, for her kids, praying for her husband, the ministry, the different situations that burdened the family. That is a special memory. I, I never want to forget that voice that just kind of, I, I can still hear my mom praying out loud. Um, and, and then a question that also entered my mind this past week is, how many of us would have kept praying, you know, out loud with the window open? Would you? Now, I think some of you would say, oh, yeah, you know, God can count on me. I'm, I'm committed. I, I'm, I'm strong. I'm not going to let a little bit of intimidation change my style. But then my follow-up question would be, okay, you say you would have left the window open and you would have prayed out loud. Um, here's the question I have. Do you have consistent set prayer times right now? And I'm not talking about prayer times that are just on the run. But I'm, ta- I'm talking about prayer times that your family knows about. And they will not bother you during those times because they know you have an appointment with the Lord. Or, 
How about this question? Would you even pray out loud in public settings? You know, what if I called on you to pray this morning? And I won't. Well, maybe I won't. Would you have the courage to lift your voice in prayer in a public setting? And if we struggle with those questions, I have serious doubts that we would have done as Daniel did. So how did Daniel have that kind of courage that allowed him to stand for matters of conscience? Well, that leads us to the second observation. Kneeling to pray is what gives you the strength to stand. Now, I don't necessarily mean that you have to kneel to pray, even though that's what Daniel did. And and, and there's something that just feels right about praying on your knees. Now, I I don't do enough of that either. But I think the point here is that having regular times of prayer is what gives you the strength to stand when there is a collision of values and and, and when you deal with matters of conscience. Don't expect to have courage if you don't have the discipline to set regular, consistent times of prayer. And and something that, that, that we need to notice, Daniel did not open up the window and yell, I don't give a rip what the government says. I'm going to do my own thing. You know, today we would go to Facebook and lash out at the government. Nor did Daniel try to form a resistance movement against this edict and plan a march at the king's palace. And there may be a place for that on occasion. But Daniel didn't make a big deal of it. He said, you know, I love my Lord. I've always prayed out loud to him three times a day. He's taken care of me. I'm not going to break my three daily appointments with God. And I'm convinced that so much of the success of Daniel's life was based on, here's what I want to call, predecisions. Sometime earlier, perhaps decades earlier, he had made a decision that he would pray, not just in the morning, but also in the middle of his day, and then in the evening. And he knew that especially during this 70-year period of Israel's captivity in Babylon, he needed continual communion with God. Which leads me to conclude this. If you do not have a predetermined time and a continual practice of prayer, I can almost guarantee you that you will never have the strength to stand when there is that collision of values and when you're being pressured to do things that violate your conscience and violate Scripture. If if we don't consistently pray, we will probably wilt in the face of pressure. And, you know, for me, and, I, and I'm, not the prime, I'm not a great example here because I fail way too much, but my predetermined time is first thing in the morning. I, I'm a morning person, and this may not work for you, but um, at around 6.30 in the morning, I have my daily appointment with the Lord, and, and I'm not saying that I never miss because I do miss, but that's the appointment I have with God, and, and I try to pray other times throughout the day. Many times God brings some of you to mind during the day. And there are times that I feel I need extra wisdom. I, I send up a quick SOS prayer throughout the day. But I've determined that early in the day I need to fill my heart. I need to fill my mind with God. Now I'm sorry to say that there, there are t- plenty of times that I struggle with my quiet time. And my mind is so good at wandering off other things. Some mornings I feel as if I haven't even really connected with God. So I'm not presenting myself as a great example here, but because I have a predetermined time, there are times when God does speak to me. Yes, at times I'm off in la-la land. 
But other times he speaks to me and he gives me direction. He gives me insight into his word. He gives me direction for a sermon or, or those times that I love so much when he just gives me the wonderful gift of his presence. Maybe no insight, but just the wonderful gift of his presence. And so could I urge you, set a time and a place where you will spend time with Jesus. Because you never know when you may be placed in a position where you will have to take a stand as Daniel did. It could be that God may call you to take a stand against maybe, maybe the hunger problem in our community or the child trafficking problem in the world or the orphan problem in the world. It could be that God will call you to take a stand in this community against the alcohol problem or maybe against the drug problem. It could be that you may be asked to take a stand in the classroom against some teachings that don't line up to the Word. It could be that God may ask you to take a stand and say no to some things that your friends are urging you to do. Or it could be that God will call you to take a stand in your own family and and not allow, listen, and not allow certain television programs to be played in your home because there's too much violence, too much flesh, too much language, wrong values, and you have to say to your family, I'm sorry I've been way too casual about this, but we're making some changes in our home. It could be that God will call you to live a more simplistic lifestyle and cut back on your spending so you can give more to certain ministries. It could be that God may call some of you students to start a Bible study before school. It could be that God may call some of you adults to work in the nursery or help with feeding the kids that Jim talked about or even just take a one-hour turn and help clean the church. When you have a regular, consistent prayer time, when God calls you, you will be more likely to have the strength and the courage to do what God wants you to do and say what God wants you to say. Now, I wish I could tell you that when you honor God, everything will always work out the way you want it to. But see, we're not talking about a Disney movie. This is real life. And not everyone always lives happily ever after. People will resist you. People will hurt your feelings. There are no guarantees that there won't be hurt and disappointment, but I can make this promise, which is our third point. When you do what is right, you can always trust God with the results. Daniel didn't know the rest of the story. He didn't know that this story would end up being a favorite Sunday school story for centuries to come. All that Daniel knew was that for 80 years, God had been faithful to him, and no matter what, he had pre-decided that he would be faithful, period. No, no, but, but God, what is? Or, or, but God, how come? Or, 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 but God, this doesn't seem fair. Daniel had pre-decided he would be faithful and trust God, period. In Spanish, we say punto. Or if it's at the end of the book, punto final, final period. Something that I think has to really grieve the heart of God is that today we're, and I pray that you will hear me here in the right spirit, but I, we're way more worried about our rights rather than trusting God. You know, we get all up in arms over so many things. We're afraid we're going to be discriminated against, maybe because we're rich or because we're poor or because we drive a nice, nice car or because we don't. 
or because we got the vaccine or we didn't get the vaccine or never planned to get it. We're so worried about being discriminated against. And here's our motto, we have our rights, which incidentally, if you read the New Testament, you probably won't ever say that again. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul said, I have my rights, but I give them up for the sake of Jesus. Daniel didn't worry about his rights. Of course, he was discriminated against. Of course, it wasn't fair. Of course, it violated his rights. But how did he respond? He didn't pick it. He didn't pout. He didn't march. He didn't mouth off. He prayed and trusted. Question, do you think it'd be more beneficial if we would focus more on praying than worried about our rights? And instead of investing so much emotional energy into the ways that people or the government or the company we work for are discriminating against us, why don't we focus more on praying three times a day and give those concerns of our rights to God? Well, King Darius was devastated when he heard that Daniel had violated the decree because he had come to love and respect Daniel. And verse 14 said, hearing this, the king was very angry with himself. He was mad at himself for signing the law. He tried to find a way to save Daniel. He spent the rest of the day looking for a way to get Daniel out of this predicament. I mean, he, he began trying to go against this, but the law of the Medes and the Persians was irrevocable, and even the king could not undo it at this point. He had signed it. He had sealed it. Verse 16, so at last the king gave orders for Daniel to be arrested and thrown into the den of lions. Now, unfortunately, much to my disappointment, God left out a bunch of details here that I'd like to know. And there are no history books that give us any information here, but uh, I'd like to know what happened whenever they pitched Daniel into the lion's den. Um, I don't know if whenever he hit the floor, if the, if, the da- if the lions began snarling at Daniel, and I don't know if they crouched and were ready to spring, and at that point God kind of intervened. intervened. All the Bible says that an angel shut the lion's mouth. We don't know any details beyond that. But anyway, after a sleepless night, the first thing that King Darius did was run to the lion's den. It's almost like he had a hunch. I think during the night he had a hunch. He thought, you know what, I I just have a hunch. It's going to be okay. And and so he ran to the lion's den and, and he called out, Daniel, Daniel, are you okay? Has, has your God whom you continually serve, has he rescued you from the pit of the lions? And he heard Daniel's voice. (laughs) In verse 22, my God sent his angel to shut the lion's mouths so they would not hurt me, for I have been found innocent in his sight. I've not wronged you, your majesty. So here's what I want to point out. Remember, whenever the edict came out, Daniel didn't go on Facebook. He didn't defend himself. He just prayed. But then... God opened the opportunity for him to defend himself, to clear his name. Isn't that amazing? Sometimes our first thought is, i got to clear my name before we pray. Daniel prayed. He trusted God. And then he was able to say, King, I'm really innocent. I'm not against you. I haven't wronged you. Uh, This was a setup. You've been hoodwinked. In verse 23, the king was overjoyed and ordered that Daniel be lifted from the den. Not a scratch was found on him because he had trusted in his God. 
It became clear that jealousy is what had motivated these other administrators to push for this decree. And so the king said, Daniel, you know what? You work the night shift in the lion's den. Now let's let these guys work the day shift. And that shift was brutal. King gave orders to arrest the men who had maliciously accused Daniel. He had them thrown in the lion's den along with their wives and their children. Did you hear that? Not just them, but their families. I think he was so upset because he knew that they were connivers. And so he said, this element has to go. And what happened? The lions leaped on them, tore them apart before they even hit the floor of the den. Another translation says their bones were crushed. And the closing verses of Daniel chapter 6 have the king issuing a decree that everyone in the kingdom should fear the God of Daniel. Now really fast, uh, for our wrap-up time together, let me make a few statements that we can kind of take home with us. Number one, number one, beware of cats. (laughs) They can be extremely dangerous. You knew I'd get that in some place, didn't you? Actually, Number one, number one, even at the age of 80, Daniel was still willing to be involved in leadership. Some of you are 80 here this morning, nearing 80. If you are a senior, we need you. We want you. Don't ever say, well, I've served my time. We need your experience. We need your leadership. We value you. Number two, regular and consistent spiritual disciplines are the key for being able to stand for matters of conscience. If you're not praying consistently, if you're not praying systematically, you will probably react in one of the two wrong ways. You will either be silent or you will be ugly. So make sure you have regular, consistent, daily times with God. This next one kind of ties in with the previous one. Your first priority should always be to pray. If you're accused falsely, if you're treated unfairly, and you will be, if you feel like you're discriminated against, and you will be, don't overreact. Be steady. And your first priority before you go to Facebook or Instagram, before you defend yourself, is to pray. And then more than likely after you pray, you know, God generally opens the opportunity for you to be able to defend yourself, but always pray first. Another statement I want to make is don't worry so much about your rights and what is fair. Life's not fair. Just accept it. Quit whining. Life's not fair. That's the way it is. Someone close to you, probably somebody from the church, will hurt you. That's a product of this fallen world. You can't change that. But you can make sure that you don't get bitter and cynical over it. And then... After you pray, after you do what is right, trust God with the results. It may not always turn out like you would hope, 
the lions may have you for lunch. Um, but regardless, trust God to take care of you. You know, there are a lot of people that are in the faith chapter that were heroes of the faith, and they, uh, it didn't turn out. Not everybody lived happily ever after, but you know what? One day they will live happily ever after. One day there is, there is a reward for faithfulness. So, you know, we need to be honest, faithful, steadfast, Let's just do what is right regardless and have the right attitude. God, I, I know this has been a favorite story down through the years. Lord, we all just, uh, you know, we just kind of accept it and, you know, this kid's story, but sometimes we don't really even think of the lessons for us. And so, God, I pray that um, as we are living in a world with the collision of values and moral values, ethical values. Lord, our whole, uh, seems like education system today is kind of warped and, uh, Father, whether it's, a, it's at a high level or low, lower level, it seems like there are lessons that are, that, that are just kind of being jammed into our kids' brains that... Uh, Father, are false, and, and I pray that we would be able to sort through that, and Lord, with the collision of those values, that we would be able to take a stand whenever it's the right time, but God, help us to be faithful, honest, steadfast, responsible. Lord, I pray for us as a church that we would react the right way, that there would always be a lot of love, that there would always be a lot of prayer, and Lord, uh, that we would kind of overlook the faults of each other, that there would not be the disunity, Lord, that we would be supportive of each other. Lord, whenever you call us to take a stand, let us do so with courage. Lord, let us do so with righteousness, with godliness. God, in the days ahead, we believe that the collision of values is just going to keep happening more and more and more. Lord, I pray that you would just help us to be able to... uh, to do what's right. Thank you for this amazing kids lesson that's really for big church as well. Lord, uh, this week, just a practical prayer as we have to stand up. Lord, let us do so. Let us do so in the right way with your help. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for coming. You're dismissed. You've been listening to the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Our messages are archived at www.eldochurch.com or to order compact discs or DVD videos of the messages, call the church at 417-876-2200. Thank you for listening.